0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and verses 12 through 15. It's found on page one. 2019 in the Bibles underneath your seats. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The Word of God for the people of God.
1: Well, open your Bibles to James 1 if you're not there already. And as you're getting there, uh, I want to make a brief appeal to you. Um, the real test of the gospel influence of your life and mine is this. Uh, how well we pass on the faith to the next generation, right? Right? I mean, Christianity is always one generation away from extinction, and part of how God furthers his kingdom in the world is through Christians passing on the faith to those who come behind them. And so I want to make an appeal to you this morning um, for the important work that we do every Sunday in the Quarmdale Kids ministry. Uh, Last Sunday, we had to shut down some classrooms just due to a lack of adult volunteers, and there are plenty of us here this morning to remedy that problem. And so, this is the part where I appeal to you and say, I need about 30 of you to step into serving one Sunday a month uh, in Corndale Kids. We'll give you all the training and equipping that you need to do that job well. And it is very meaningful and important work. And we think about the legacy that's been entrusted to us. And so after this service, Kelly Greening is going to be out in the atrium. That's Kelly. She runs our Quamdio Kids ministry. And if you'll just stop by and see her and let her know, hey, I'd be willing to serve, then she'll just sort of take it forward from there, follow up with you, get the whole process rolling. Um, but please, if you would, um, take advantage of that opportunity and that um, important need to serve within the church family. As we get into the text of James this morning, uh, I want to I dismantle a false gospel that's um, pretty common. Uh, it doesn't sound false when you first hear it, but it is. And it's very prevalent out there in the world, and it sounds like this. If you give your life to Jesus, then life will get better for you. Now, listen, the fact is that hardship is one of the things that often opens us up to God, right? Like when life's going well, maybe you don't feel like you have any needs, but there are are moments in life we meet difficulty and hardship and pain and challenging circumstances that sometimes we're asking deeper questions. Um, Sometimes we're more open to our need for help and support and intervention. And so a lot of times in those moments in life, people begin asking questions about, God. And so it's true that when you're in hardship and someone perhaps says to you, hey, if you give your life to Jesus, life will get better. Um, That's a common thing for us to hear in those moments. And listen, there's an important sense in which that's true, right? I mean, actually life does get better. When we give our lives to Jesus, there's a deep sense of peace and joy and contentment that you can't find anywhere else that really does settle into your being. And so it's true in one sense that as you give your life to Jesus, life gets better. But That doesn't mean your life's circumstances get better, right? That doesn't mean your circumstances get better. And there's actually a really good reason for that that we're going to get to in just a minute. So we're beginning this morning a series in the book of James that will last through the rest of the fall and toward Christmas. And so I want to give you a brief sort of introduction to this book of the Bible so you can sort of have a sense of where we are in Scripture and what it is that sort of makes this book distinct and unique. So first of all, as you probably noticed, James is toward the end of the Bible. Like there's not a whole lot of pages left after you get to James, right? So if you get to Hebrews and turn right, you're in James. It's one of the last books in the New Testament, one of the later books in the New Testament, But what's interesting is it's one of the earliest books written as far as date. Uh, The first century historians Eusebius and Josephus both confirm for us that the author, James, died in 62 AD. And so that means this book was written between about 40 AD and 62 AD, so just a few decades after the life and death of Jesus Christ. So it's a very early book in the New Testament, one that gives us insight into, for the first Christians... What were their challenges? What were their struggles? What things were they facing in life that God felt a need to instruct them in? So it's a very early book. Second, it's unique and interesting because of the author. The author, James, is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph and Mary. And what's interesting about James is he did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. So if your family thinks you're crazy for being a Christian, you're in good company. That's what Jesus' family was like too. And the good news is there's hope because after Jesus rose from the dead, his own brothers were like, oh, I guess I need to rethink how I evaluated who this Jesus person is, right? So James came to faith later and became one of the uh, leaders in the early church in Jerusalem. Um, additionally, James is one of the most practical and concrete books in the New Testament. If, you, if you're the kind of person that doesn't do like abstract theology, You're going to love James because James is very earthy and practical. He is a theologian. He is a deep thinker, but he uses imagery and metaphors that just arrest you and grab hold of the things of everyday life. He talks about riding a horse and sailing a boat and putting out a fire, right? And so if these are the kinds of things you can relate to, if you like instruction that's very practical and earthy and tangible, then this book is for you. What's challenging about the book in some ways is, That some scholars call it the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's arranged sort of thematically. It's a book that's kind of wisdom literature in a sense. And so it's just a bunch of instruction on a bunch of different topics. It doesn't have a super chronological flow, it's not entirely linear. It's arranged around themes and topics. Look with me at chapter one, verse one, where we meet the author and the recipients James. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, what a great, humble intro. Like he could have said, James, the brother of Jesus. Or he could have said, James, the bishop of Jerusalem, right? There's a lot of cards he could have dropped here that were true about who he was. But how he identifies himself is just, hey, I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, just like you. Like He wants you to know he's, he's not starting from a place of positional authority. He's starting from a place of, hey, I, I serve the Lord like you. And so here's what I'm doing is writing. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This is a really interesting reference. It, it harkens back to the Old Testament. And specifically to the latter books of the Old Testament, if you know a little bit about Old Testament history, you know there's a part of the Old Testament where the people of Israel are living in the land that God had promised them under the kings and rulers that God had given them. But then later in the Old Testament, as a result of their disobedience, they're exiled from the land and they're scattered among these pagan nations, Babylon and Assyria and Persia. And so, in that season of the Old Testament, they were referred to as the dispersion because they're literally just scattered out there in all these different parts of the world. And James says, Your life as a Christian is kind of like that. Like, here we are, we're gathered together here this morning in the church, but. Man, in the rest of the week, we're scattered throughout the city, right? You're living in a neighborhood. You're working at a job. There might be someone else from Quorumdale at your workplace or in your neighborhood, but there might not be. You're just sort of out there among the world, and this is what it means to live life as a Christian is you're a person belonging to the kingdom of God, scattered out there in the world among a bunch of people who don't follow God and don't walk in the same way that you do and might think it's weird and different that you believe what you do and that you live as you do. And so James, harkening back to this Old Testament theme, says, hey, I'm writing to just Christians scattered everywhere. Wherever you are in the world, wherever you live, whatever your life circumstances, is, James is writing to you, All right? Now, his approach is thematic, which is why this morning we're dealing with verses 1 through 4 and verses 12 through 15, because as you're going to see, they treat very similar themes. And as we go forward, you're going to notice that we're occasionally going to sort of grab text like that and cluster them together because they deal with the same theme. And this morning's theme is the theme of trials and temptation. Here's the big idea that James wants to establish right out of the gate as we begin the book. God is out to change you, not your circumstances. God is out to change you, not your circumstances. If you're going to understand the Christian faith, If you're going to understand why God does what God does, if you're going to understand the Bible, if you're going to understand what God is up to in the life of his people, you've got to grasp this, that God is out to change you, not your circumstances. Let's dive right into the text. James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What a starting point, right? There is no slow roll into the topic It's like, hey, let me warm you up a little bit by just talking about some regular life stuff. We're not talking about the weather. We're not talking about football. He says, hey, James, to y'all, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. We're starting out talking about the, the hardest stuff in life. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How many of you guys are already doing awesome at this? And so you don't really need any more of the sermon? Right, me too. That's why this is in the Bible, right? Notice the language, count it all joy. In other words, this probably isn't your default setting. It's probably not the default reality in your life that any time you encounter trial or hardship or difficulty, that you're just like, man, joy. There's a spiritual discipline involved here of, of choosing, of deciding to, to look through a different lens at what is happening in life. So why would we, why should we count it all joy when we encounter various trials? Well, notice verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the reason you should count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds is because God is doing something in you. God is out to change you, not your circumstances. Last week, my wife and I dropped our son, Lewis, off at Hillsdale College in Michigan. It's an inflection point in a young person's life, right? That sort of transition into that season of independence. And it reminded me that weekend, as we were making that shift in our family life, that reminded me of another moment in our relationship five years ago, when Lewis turned 13. And I wanted to mark that moment in life, and I wanted to to teach him about diligence and perseverance and steadfastness as he turned the corner into his teenage years. And so I called up a friend of mine who lives in Colorado, and Lewis and I took a long weekend, and we headed to the Rockies to climb a mountain. Here's the evidence. This is Lewis and I at the summit of Mount Bierstadt, 14,060 feet. Now, why would I put my 13-year-old son through the trial of hiking for seven hours up a mountain? I mean, it's kind of a fun trial. It's like the kind of thing people do on vacation, right? But why would I demand that of him at age 13? Why would I say, hey, we're going to go do something hard and challenging, something that takes perseverance and grit and determination? Well, quite simply, because I wanted to produce something in him and in myself right? I want to produce endurance and determination and steadiness. And the test, the challenge of hiking a mountain helps to produce those things. Likewise, our Father in heaven, in order to produce something in us, tests his sons and daughters, puts us through challenges Asks things of us that require determination and perseverance and grit. Perhaps you remember one of the most famous stories in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. We read this After these things, God tested Abraham, same word, and said to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. Abraham passed the test. He trusted and obeyed God, even though it seemed very confusing in the moment, even though he didn't have answers to why God was asking this, he trusted and obeyed. God's intent was not for Abraham to sacrifice his son. He was testing Abraham. And likewise, he tests you he sends trials and challenges into your life and mine not to break us but to build us to shape us look again at james 1 verse 3 you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness that's what god's after and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing so just mark something really important here okay Salvation, conversion, the moment that you come to Jesus and entrust your life to Him, that moment is the beginning, not the end. We live in a world of American Christianity where people think that's the end, where what we talk about is getting saved, quote unquote. You know what getting saved is? It's the beginning of something. Listen to Kurt Richardson, writing on this passage in the New American Commentary, he says, Perseverance, though essential to faith, is not infused immediately in a moment of conversion. Only through great ardor and sustained service, in spite of opposition, does perseverance come. See, God is out to build something in you, and it doesn't come in the moment of conversion. It comes after that moment, as you continue to persevere and be faithful and grow in trust and faith and obedience through seasons of life that seem challenging and difficult, through circumstances you didn't expect. See, James wants you and I to have a paradigm shift. As we face trials, instead of worrying or complaining, he wants us to to make a decision to think about them and view them differently, to count it all joy, to make a calculation that leads to a different disposition where we <laughs> embrace the reality, hey, God is perfecting me. God is completing me. God is making me more steadfast. He's doing something in me. Now listen, you, don't always, you can't always tell this to yourself, which is why you need people around you to tell it to you, right? Like Sometimes as, as much as you would like to believe that, it's too painful for you to sort of convince yourself of that. And so you need a community of people around you that can say, hey, you know what God is doing? He's doing something in you. He's producing something in you. I can see. I I see the beginnings of it. I know this is hard, but here's what I see God up to in this situation. So I wonder if we could do that for one another. Someone in your gospel community, someone in your circle of friends is going through a trial. And our tendency in those moments is to focus on the circumstance, to want to give practical advice. Here's what I would do if I were you. But I want us to remind each other, hey, God is out to change you. God is out to change you. God's doing something in his people in the midst of trials of various kinds. One of the great tests and trials that I've been walking through recently is the fact that in the past five years, our family has moved four times. Now, thankfully, that season is mostly behind us, but that domino chain was set in motion because I made a bad decision to sell the family home that had been in our family for 40 years. And it seemed like a good decision at the time, and we prayed about it and felt like it was the right thing to do, but it was a mistake. And as the leader of the family, there was a time in the midst of all that when I was feeling the financial turmoil, the relational turmoil, the upheaval to our family life, and my attention was just all on the circumstances. I was just trying to figure out, how can I just get us in different circumstances? And my daughter, Sophie, said to me one day, Dad, I've seen you cry more in the past year than ever in the rest of my life, and that seems significant and important. Maybe that's as important as what house we're living in. What a gift that conversation was to me. Because what she was saying is, Dad, I see God doing something in you. It's not about the circumstances. God is up to something in you. Friends, God is out to change you, not your circumstances. And when you see this, it begins to change how you respond and relate to the trials and difficulties of life. So there's a reason James starts here. There's a reason as he begins this book that's going to last us until Christmas. It's five chapters long. He wants to say, the first thing I have to say to you is, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. Because he wants you to understand, here's the kind of God we serve. We serve a God that is out to change you and me. We serve a God that is after a certain kind of people. And his goal is not just to get you saved. His goal is to make you into someone who is fit to inhabit his eternal kingdom. And that happens over time. Now, jump down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. You see the thematic connection, right? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. I would love to just be able to preach on this one verse. But this connects really well to Justin's sermon from last week, doesn't it? What day are you living for? See, there's a day coming, James is telling you, when steadfastness and perseverance and faithfulness and diligence and steadiness will be richly rewarded. And that's the day we're living for. That's the day we're hoping for. That's the day that matters. Now, One of the trials we experience in life is the trial of temptation. Like, think about this. In this life that you and I are living, God allows you to face opportunities to do things that do not please God. And so this next section about temptation is one of the most crucial passages in the entire New Testament. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God. Let no one say. Your inner dialogue matters. What you tell yourself matters. And James knows one of our, one of our temptations is when we're tempted, we, we sort of want to say, this is God's fault. God put me in this situation. But read the rest of the verse carefully, friends. This is really important. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James wants you to remember in your moments of temptation, this is not God's fault. God cannot be tempted with evil, and God tempts no one. God is fully and utterly and totally good. So where does temptation come from then? Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The word desire here is the word epithumia, which literally means strong desire, over-desire, craving, longing. The idea is of a desire that has morphed into a demand. Remember the storyline we're living in, right? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. You as a human being were created in the image of God, which means your desires, rightly ordered, are good. They're not fallen, they're not disordered, they're not twisted. God created you as a longing being and he made you to long for himself. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. As St. Augustine said, your desires are part of the equipment God gave you to orient you toward him. However, we also live under the effects of the fall. And what that means is your desires and mine are corrupted, disordered, turned in on themselves. Right? So desire itself is good. The problem is our desires are not Pure. And so we take good things that God gave us, good desires, and we turn them into demands, right? So your desires under the effects of the fall, friends, are not neutral. They're not innocuous. They're not impotent. Look at the metaphor in verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see here some of the just real earthy imagery of James, right? He's telling you, your desires are pregnant with potential for sin and for death. But you see, God is out to change you. And one of the ways he wants to change you is by changing your desires, changing the things you want. Let me show you, just real simply, how sin works based on this text in James, one of the most helpful texts in the Bible for understanding the progress of desire that turns into sin that leads to death. Here's how it goes. It begins with desire. I want it, whatever it is. Okay? And Again, desire in itself may be fine. Here's what happens. Desire turns into demand. I need it. Which turns into decision, I will have it. Which turns into judgment, because it never actually satisfies me the way I hope for. And you know whose fault it is? Yours. Whoever you is, you might be other people, you might be God. But when I make a decision that I will have this, that I must have this, that I'm going to go get it, and it fails me, do I look at myself and say, oh, that's probably my fault? course not. We judge others. You failed me. This is your fault. This is your problem. You're the one who let me down, which now leads to punishment. You're the problem. I mean, just look at how this works in your own soul. You can see this playing out in a bunch of different ways, right? Let's work through some examples. I want affirmation. What a good and right thing that God gave us, the desire to be affirmed by other people. I need Affirmation. I will have affirmation. I will have your affirmation. You will affirm me. Oh, you didn't affirm me in the way I wanted you to. So you're a bad person. You have failed me. Now you're the problem, and I need to remove you from my life. I want respect. What a noble thing for human beings to respect one another, give honor to one another. I need respect. I will have respect. I will be respected by you. Oh, you have failed to respect me in the way that I demand. Therefore, you are the problem. I want happiness. What a great noble thing that God gave us the desire for happiness and intends to fulfill that desire in his eternal kingdom. I need happiness. I will be happy. You will make me happy. That's your job after all. Oh, you've failed to make me happy. You are the problem. And you see how the word you here can easily turn... Vertical, right? It's God's fault. God, you're the problem. You didn't give me what I asked for. You haven't filled me in the ways I want. You didn't answer my demands. Therefore, you, God, are the problem. See how subtle this is? But how much of our lives it explains? I mean, James is telling you, look, here's, here's what it all comes down to. Your desires that have become demands. And friends, God is out to change you. And to change me, which is why this text is in the Bible. This word is His grace to you and me, right now. Because He wa- Whoa. okay. He wants you to stop blaming your sin on others, on your circumstances, on God, on the culture, on your family of origin, on whatever, and just to say, Hey, do you know what the core problem is? Your desires. I mean, aren't you tired of a world where everybody's blaming everybody else all the time for everything? This is why Christianity is one of the most freeing religions and one of the most refreshing worldviews in the world, because while everybody else is pointing fingers at everyone else and telling everybody that they are the problem, we get the freedom of saying, actually, it starts with me. The problem starts here, with my desires, with my heart. What a sane world it would be if every one of us was looking first to ourselves. What do I desire? And how are my desires the root of the sin and dysfunction in my life? What is it I most want? And listen, verse 15 of James 1 is preaching the gospel to you if you have eyes to see it. Notice what it says. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And the good news of the gospel is, friends, that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to deal with the problem of sin and death. And he did so by dying on the cross in our place and conquering death once and for all, thereby conquering the effect of sin and overcoming both the penalty and power of sin in our lives, setting us free from sin. And then rising from the dead, returning to heaven, and sending his Holy Spirit so that we can actually experience the kind of change that goes deep down into the core of our being and changes us from the inside out. The gospel is the good news that your desires can, in fact, be changed. That's what Jesus came to do by conquering death, by setting us free from sin. He also gives the power to transform our desires. And that's the good news of grace that the Holy Spirit has been given, so that our desires can be changed, so that we could become a different kind of people, so that this progression of desire becoming demand, turning into sin, and leading to death can be changed, so that we could return to right and good desires. Notice what the verse says, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who what? Who love him. What joy. That's the kind of people God wants to make us. People who love him more than we love all the other stuff in life that becomes desire, that leads to sin, that leads to death. God is out to change you not your circumstances. Now look, the good news is sometimes God changes your circumstances, right? Like he's a good father. Sometimes he does give you what you want in life, but a lot of times he doesn't. And I have found in the years of serving as a pastor, one of the hardest things for Christians to deal with is I want this from God. He hasn't given it to me. I feel conflicted. I feel confused. I don't know how to make sense of that. Friends, James is telling you how to make sense of that. What he's saying is, here's what you need to remember. God is ultimately out to change you. He's out to shape a people who are a different kind of people, who live for different things, who love different things, who are transformed and changed, who are beautiful human beings because their corrupted desires are being transformed into holy and good and noble ones. And the glorious good news, friends, is he has the power to change you. He loves you enough to change you. And he's done all the work to change you. And so, the real question for us this morning is simply this, and I think this is what James wants us to ask Is that what you're after? Is that the thing you're after? To be a person changed by the grace of God. I don't know what brought you here this morning. Here's what I know there's lots of reasons people come to church. There are a lot of social reasons we come here. There are a lot of relational reasons we come here. There are a lot of life-related reasons we might come here. So I don't know what it is that you're here seeking this morning, but here's what God is saying to you from his word. The reason God brought you here is because he wants to change you. Because he wants to transform you. Because he's up to something in your life, turning you into a certain kind of person. And so what that means is, if you're not interested in being changed, you're in the wrong place. Like, that's the business God is in. He's in the business of changing people. So I just want to invite you to embrace this journey, to embrace this truth that God is out to change you. So I wonder if you could just, as we sort of get ready to pray, if you could just forget that there's anyone else in the room right now. There's a lot of other people in the room, but I want you to realize that God has something he wants to do in you as an individual human being. God wants to change you. And he wants you to welcome that work this morning. He wants you to open yourself up to him and to his grace. He wants you as an individual person made in his image to say, God, go ahead and do whatever you want to do in me. Refine me, change me, sanctify me, grow me, change my desires, give me deeper love, change who I am, change my story, rewrite the places and the parts that are broken and that need to be reauthored and retold. He needs to do that in you. He wants to do it in you. And so the question is just, Will you encounter him in that way this morning? Will you open yourself up as an individual human being to the grace of God? Forget about what God is doing in anyone else in the room. I know there's also somebody down the row from you who really needs to hear this sermon, right? But I want you to bring your own self before God and just say, God, would you do work in me? Would you change me? Would you work out your purposes in me? And if you're not ready to do that, I at least want you to be honest about that with Him, because He knows that too. Let's pray together. Father, would you start with me? I confess how much I fail to count at joy when I meet trials how slow I am to believe that you want to do work in me and that that's more important to you than changing my circumstances. Also mindful of how I am tempted to blame temptation on other people or on you to make it someone else's fault that I'm a sinner. So Father, I want to put myself before you this morning and I pray for each of my brothers and sisters in this room that we would just open our hearts before you and say, God, start with me. God, do your work in me. Father, for those of us that are here for less than transformative reasons, would you this morning grab a hold of our hearts? You help us to come here to encounter you. Help us to be ready to be changed by you. God, we just want to open ourselves up before you and say, God, go to work in us. Change us, transform us. Make us into a different kind of people. Overcome our sin, transform our desires, and give us the kind of joy that can look at the trials and difficulties of life and believe that our Father is out for our good and is turning us into better people. Give us the grace to believe this and the grace to open ourselves to you for our good and for your glory. Amen.